First Timothy chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 8. Brethren, let us hear the word of God. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. May the Lord be pleased to bless the reading of His Word to our hearts this evening. Brother, I'm going to do something uh, very unusual for my normal manner of preaching. Uh, tonight, I have a very large number of quotes. Now, I generally don't like to read quotes for many reasons. I'm not here to impress anybody with my library. I'm certainly not here to, uh, uh, also on the other hand, get up and, and read simply other people's material, because I don't have anything to say, and that is not the issue either. But this verse, verse 9 I'm pointing to, is a very, very important verse. It has become something of a battleground as it relates to the issue of modesty, which is an issue regarding church life. Now, this is inescapable uh, if we believe the Word of God. Now, if you cast the Word of God behind your back, I will have little to say to you this evening of import. But uh, if you believe the Word of God, and you believe that the 66 books have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and are the infallible Word and testimony of our God, uh, then it is vital that we understand what this verse means, especially in our day. <clears throat> For those of you that are visiting with us, uh, you may think that you have... Uh, um, walked into some kind of a time warp to hear someone actually preaching, have the audacity or the uh, or a screw loose somewhere to get up in our day and say anything about the issue of modesty. Because after all, this is America. We do what we want and we dress like we want, right? No. Not God's people. Amen. Never God's people. Amen. And it is because we are God's people. And so we, we take this seriously. I, uh, uh, again, for the benefit of those of you that are, are visiting with us, we, uh, we publish a booklet that I wrote regarding the subject of modesty, and I would encourage you to get a copy before you leave and take it with you and read it. Uh, it's certainly not the last word, and it won't be the best thing you've ever read on, on modesty, but it does attempt to deal with the Scriptures. Now, I've been doing some uh, general teaching regarding this subject because we live in a day that has utterly lost the concept of modesty. And so we want to take the time, as we have the last few weeks, to take this subject and to see what the Scriptures have to say about it. Now, I'm going to zero in on this one verse tonight. Uh, and I'm going to be reading uh, extensive quotations. And the reason for that will become more apparent as I do it. I am no scholar 
when it comes to the Greek language. Uh, But I have attempted to amass a number of quotations from men who are for the, the very purpose of showing to you, God willing, that the things that I have to say are not things that I have conjured up out of my own, as the Puritans might say, out of my own fevered brain. Um, This is not something uh, that is just coming from someone who has a bone to pick with someone or who has a problem and is trying to foist it on everyone else. Uh, It's not a matter of uh, attempting to be a stick in the mud or uh, to try to take away everyone's concept of fun and liberty and all of those kinds of things. I want us all to see that the very language itself demands a particular understanding. And that if we call ourselves God's people, we must bow to that. So, this will be a little unusual for me. I am not used to... uh, Uh, reading quote after quote. I hope it doesn't become too tedious for you. But there is a method uh, to my uh, purpose. and I mean, there is a method in my unfolding this this way. And I do have a purpose that I trust will become clear as we go through it. Uh, Therefore, verse 9 is very, very important. Paul is talking to a young elder. And... uh, Timothy was uh, a bishop, an elder, a pastor at Ephesus. Ephesus was a wealthy city. For what I understand, at least if my reading has been correct, uh, there were certain portions of Ephesus because it was a port city that that remind me, uh, at least from my own history, of uh, New Orleans. New Orleans is a, is a, a large, sprawling port city. And there are portions of it that are absolutely vile and wretched beyond belief. And uh, it apparently was the same way with Ephesus. Um, Somehow or another, port cities uh, seem to always have those sides of town to them. Of course, there are many fine people in New Orleans. This is not to be a slam at the people of New Orleans as such. But I'm talking about the area of that town which is given over to licentiousness and perversion of every kind. Uh, So Timothy was uh, dealing with something that's not unlike what our entire culture is becoming. The media in our country has become the voice of God to the people of this nation. And it tells them what is normal. You Christian parents are under the very charge of God to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, not the salacious ideas that come out of Hollywood. Unfortunately, our society is so drenched with sensuality and with the wickedness and perversion of our day that very often when Christians come to something like this, one of two things happens. They read it, they hear it, they think about it for a few minutes, and they go, yeah, well, you know, that obviously had to do with something that was going on back then, but that doesn't really have anything to do with us. And unfortunately, there are many Bible commentators that help feed that kind of distorted notion. 
This is the Word of God. And while certain things about our cultures may change and be different, men's hearts are the same in every generation. And so it is vital to speak to men's hearts from the Word of God. It is also absolutely vital, God being our helper, that there be raised up a generation of men who guide their homes according to the Word of God. Until that happens, our wives and our daughters are absolutely vulnerable to everything that our perverted culture sends their way. Men, you have a responsibility before God to preserve the purity of your wives and of your daughters and to teach your sons to respect the opposite gender and to protect them rather than to use them as merchandise and for selfish gratification. Lying at the heart of that issue is the issue of modesty. Now, again, I must say something to those of you who have not been with us. Uh, This is a fourth in a message, and unfortunately, this will be the one that is the most technical. The others have been more uh, typical sermons. Um, And I've had many things to say, both to husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. Uh, There will be less of that this evening, though I will uh, uh, touch on those things. But I cannot tell you, uh, if I can't do it, I cannot dive into your hearts. But if the Spirit of God would be pleased to do, to do so, my prayer would be that we would all be gripped with a clear, biblical understanding of this issue. And that we would give ourselves to the study of God's Word until we have reclaimed the heritage of God's children when it comes to purity and chastity. Now, it's very important that we draw from this verse what it says, rather than try to read into it what we want it to say. I don't know that I ever heard any messages on this in my life, though I did hear the subject mentioned a few times when I was very, very young. By the time I reached my teenage years in the 60s and the sexual revolution was upon us, all of that was utterly gone. And unfortunately, many churches today simply do not realize how much of the world they have imbibed. And while they think they're, you know, several steps ahead of the world on one hand, in the eyes of God and according to the biblical, uh, the biblical revelation, uh, we are... We are miserably failing our young people when it comes to purity, chastity, and modesty. So, it is very difficult for any faulty human being like me or like you to be able to come to a text like this and get out of it what it says rather than what we want to read into it. Hence, my reading tonight from men that come from vastly, widely different backgrounds, Anglicans, Puritans, Baptists, Uh, Lutherans, uh, Presbyterians, uh, there are many different uh, men that I will be quoting. But, having said all of that, let's dive in here. In this particular message, I will be 
borrowing very heavily from other sources in an attempt to be careful, objective, and fair. Um, you will have to be the judge as to whether I've uh, accomplished that or not. But the works that have been especially helpful to me uh, have been uh, the pastoral epistles by William Mounts, a commentary on the pastoral epistles by George Knight, and uh, pastoral epistles by I. Howard Marshall, along with numerous other books. Now, I begin with a lengthy quote from Mounts' work on the pastorals. Listen carefully. There are three keys to interpreting this verse. Idos, that's the word that's uh, translated here. Uh, <clears throat> if you will look in verse 9, it is the, uh, the word that is translated shamefacedness. And the word that is translated sobriety, moderation, both carry sexual connotations. All right? right out of the chute, what he tells us is that the very Greek words inspired by the Word of God deal with this issue of sensuality. <clears throat> he says, secondly, Paul shifts from speaking about actual clothing to emphasizing the true priority of good deeds. In other words, the issue of modesty is not first and foremost about how much cloth happens to hang over our bodies. While that is an important aspect of it, the issue is the heart. And young people, this is what you must understand, and this is what I was never told. It is an issue of the heart. Purity, goodness, and chastity is something to be prized. It is something to be valued. It is something to be thought so very highly of. And we have lost it in our society. Thirdly, he says, cause men to adorn and catastole attire. That is the word here where it says modest apparel <clears throat> have a dual meaning clothing and a person's general deportment okay so he says there's three things to understanding this particular verse first of all that the words shamefacedness and sobriety carry sexual connotations secondly that Paul is speaking uh, is, is Paul shifts from speaking about actual clothing to emphasizing the true priority of good deeds, the heart. And thirdly, that um, the words that we have here as modest apparel have a dual meaning. Both the clothing and the person's general deportment, the way they live and think. Interior, as well as exterior. It would appear, Mounts says, that the women were dressing immodestly to the point that it was causing disruption. They were becoming preoccupied with the externals of beauty, the clothing being condemned as opulent, the jewelry excessive, and neglecting things that were truly important, such as doing good deeds. Therefore, Paul says that they are to dress in a way, hear carefully, they are to dress in a way that is in keeping with their Christian character and to concentrate on what is most important. While their dress is an issue, their attitude is Paul's 
true concern. As Proverbs 31.25 says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. Very important. So, this is not simply an issue about dress in and of itself. And unfortunately, there are many who think that as long as they walk within certain lawful guidelines, well then, they're okay. And they are, quote, modest. And that is to miss a great deal of what the passage is about. But we cannot separate one from the other. And that will be my primary point tonight. If you get nothing else this evening, what all of this ultimately amounts to is to say this. A man or a woman born of God's Holy Spirit is a new creature. His or her desire is to walk with the Lord that loved Him and gave Himself for Him. He understands that the blood of Jesus Christ purchased Him and that He is not His own, but that He belongs to the Most High. That He is God's temple the place where the Spirit of God dwells. Now, there is a great error. I have, I have attempted to speak to it before, and I come back to it again because it is the very heart, again, of what I'm saying this evening. In our day, we have made an either-or out of something that should be a both-and. <clears throat> when the heart is not right, then external things simply become empty, shallow, hollow, and they mean nothing. So what we want to get from here, God willing, as we is, and I'm just telling you the general tenor of the New Testament, is that when God transforms a man or a woman, a child, by the power of the Holy Spirit, His desire is for the things of Christ. He has a hunger for the Word. He desires to commune with His God in prayer. He wants to walk in such a way and He wants everything about His deportment to speak of the Christ that saved them. And that's something that begins in the heart and works its way on the outside. In other words, it's not just about externals. People that get caught up with externals, this is all that's important as long as you can force everybody into kind of holding on to the externals, well then everything's okay. No, it's not okay. Uh, very often this is the very heart of Phariseeism. Doing something simply for show. On the other hand, there's the error of the people and this especially has come out of the modern, gener the last uh, few generations of Christians is, well all that matters is your heart. And it doesn't matter what you really look like. God's not, God's not worried about that. All He's interested in is if your heart's right. Brethren, this verse puts the lie to that kind of thinking. That is faulty, worldly thinking, not biblical thinking. It is a half-truth that ends up making itself a lie. It is not either externals or internals. It is internals that manifest themselves in externals. It is a heart that manifests a love for Christ in what it does, in what it says, in what it thinks, 
And yes, even in what it wears. Thomas Oden writes, the first theme, speaking of this verse, as it uh, goes to the end, uh, the verses that go to the end of the chapter, the first theme is the relation of clothing and Christian witness. Seems petty? Listen carefully. The apparel of the worshiper, says Paul, is to be in good taste, well arranged, modest, respectful, for the adornment of the body is like God's adornment of the cosmos. Genesis 1. Orderly and beautiful, making good sense, reflecting the natural order of things. Now he's making that statement based directly on the words used here. And we'll see that in just a few moments. But the word cosmos, which means world <coughs> in Greek, is also used here in the word adornment. It means to be... It means, uh, it means well-ordered and well-arranged. And we'll see that in just a few minutes. So, he says the apparel of the worshiper is to be in good taste, well-arranged, modest, respectful for the adornment of the body is like God's adornment of the cosmos. Orderly and beautiful, making good sense, reflecting the natural order of things. He goes on to say, Our society is hungering again for the rare virtue of modesty. For respect, based not upon lack of self-worth, but upon clear moral self-identity. The physical adornment or dressing of the family of God, does well to nurture in persons. Listen to this. This is really a remarkable quote. The physical adornment or dressing of the family of God does well to nurture in persons a well-balanced, self-controlled soundness of mind. Now, where does he get that kind of crazy talk? From the very words of this verse. A connection is assumed between inner life and outward appearance. You mean there's such a thing as dressing like a Christian? Yes. You mean it does matter if what I wear maybe down to Walmart? Yes. If you're a child of God. He closes his quote by saying, The apparel one wears should be fitting to one's life as recipient of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. I will tell you that he begins this particular section in his commentary by saying he didn't like this passage. He didn't want to fool with this passage. There were things about it that he didn't want to deal with. Brethren, that's the heart of American Christianity. He spoke for a whole generation. He said, but I had to bow and expose myself to what God 
said. And he has something to say here. So I think this is an incredible statement from a man who didn't want anything to do with this passage. Where did he get these ideas? You're going to hear in all of the quotes that I'm going to set before you. He has given an extraordinarily well-articulated expression of what these words mean. Knight observes of the context. This is a man by the name of George Knight. Just as Paul was asking not only husbands but men in general to pray, so also he is enjoining women in general, not just wives, to dress modestly and discreetly and to behave in accord with their womanliness in relation to men. Knowing that adornment and dress is an area with which women are often concerned and in which there are dangers of immodesty or indiscretion, Paul makes that the focal point of his warning and commands women to adorn themselves in keeping with their Christian profession and life. And again, there's my theme. The interior manifesting itself in our appearance. Now, I'm not talking about a uniform, but to a greater or lesser degree, everybody got a uniform. But as God's children, it isn't just a matter of, all right, let's get out the ruler and see how holy you are. This is the way some people think. And this is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God's children have a heart that desires to honor and glorify the King that saved them. And that will be expressed in all that they do, including what they wear. If you do not think this is important, you must say to yourself, I will not hear the Word of God. Now, three heads that I want us to consider here. First of all, number one, external and internal. We've already introduced that idea. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time because it's the main point. Secondly, sensuality and ostentation. Sensuality and ostentation. And finally, worship and daily life. Now, in each one of those, there's an emphasis on the word and. External and internal. And uh, that and is pressed on every one of these. Now, by the way, uh, let me again say to those of you who perhaps are visiting with us here for the first time or here for the first time uh, since I have been here, I did not grow up in a cave. Uh, I'm not a Neanderthal. Though some of you may think that I will be dragging my knuckles by the time I leave the pulpit this evening. Um, I was in the entertainment business for 15 years. There's very little that I have not seen. And I do not say that with any joy, but to my own shame. And I say that to say that having been in the rock music business, I have lived and seen and understood the seamy and darker side of our culture. So I'm not someone who has sat up in an ivory tower for the last 50 years and decided to find a whole handful of things to pick on and make people uncomfortable about. 
But I'm talking to you directly as one whose feet were taken out of the miry clay and set upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ by the mercy and grace of a sovereign God. So I do not say these things lightly. I have much invested in them. So let's consider this issue of external and internal. First of all, it's extremely important that we realize this important connection. Clothing is external. That's on the outside of our bodies, obviously. Modesty begins as an internal. And it finally manifests itself in something external. You can have one without the other, but you cannot truly have the internal, except it finally push its way out to the outside. This is exactly Paul's point here, and we want to understand it clearly from the text before us. So, under this heading, let's consider first modesty and vocabulary. What words did Paul choose here? Now, stick with me. Uh, I don't want this to be uh, uh, the next closest thing to Salmonex here. Uh, I want you to be able to lay a hold of this, even though I'm just reading definitions to you. But the word adorn, when Paul says in like manner also that women adorn, the word simply means to put in order. It's the same root that uh, uh, is in the word world, cosmos. Uh, And... uh, It simply means to put in order or to arrange. The, the, the Greeks thought that something was beautiful when it was properly arranged, when it was in its place, so to speak. And that's, that flavor is in this word. Uh, not that we have to go to Greek culture to understand what the Holy Spirit is inspiring. But the point is, this is the idea, this is the word that Paul chose. It means a beauty because of arrangement and order. God is a God of order. He ordered this universe. And we are to be ordered, both in our thinking, uh, in our words, and in our appearance. Now the word modest, and it says, the women adorn, order themselves, arrange themselves in modest apparel, I. Howard Marshall says, this word expresses a range of meanings. Respectable, honorable, modest, orderly, beautiful. It was especially used by philosophers to convey the sense of orderliness, discipline, and decorum, and is the opposite of license. This word is the opposite of license. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul uses a word that in its very nature stands against the idea of, "Eh, I dress like I want. I do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. Especially people like preachers. He says, for from this, it has the sense of well-mannered and honorable. The impression is of a character which is tidy and neat, not slovenly or showy, although the verb has the sense of adorning. With the sense of modest, it described 
a traditional virtue used of honorable women. The specific nuance, free from sexual immorality, may be intended, but this may be too narrow a meaning. In other words, he's saying this one word can't simply have that meaning. And of course, this is one of the things that I want us to recognize. It doesn't just mean sensuality. Also, Knight says in his work, it has the general meaning of respectable, honorable. And when used in reference to women, means elsewhere as here, modest. So, that women adorn, arrange themselves in what is respectable, honorable, ordered, modest. The word apparel, catastole, I believe is the proper pronunciation of that, can mean either adornment or deportment, demeanor. In other words, it can mean what you're wearing or how you're acting. Right? In modest apparel, with a modest uh, clothing, and with a modest attitude. Paul apparently purposefully chose a word that can mean both, and both meanings fit. Both meanings fit the very thing that he's driving at. It's not either or, it's both and. It is the way we act and the way that we appear. Brethren, this is not Phariseeism. This is the very liberty of those set free from the voice of the world. Set free by the grace and the mercy of Christ. Set free to walk in a way that is pure and righteous as opposed to salacious and seductive. Uh, Backing that up, uh, a man by the name of Tom Schreiner, for whom I have a great deal of respect, he says this about that word, and and that is the word that is translated apparel. He says, the rest of verses, excuse me, he says that word, deportment, probably refers to both suitable clothing and suitable behavior. Suitable clothing and suitable behavior. The rest of verses 9 and 10 elaborate on proper deportment. What we ought to do. So it consists of modesty and discretion with respect to dress instead of enticing and ostentatious clothing. Attire that is immodest and lacking in mature judgment, including braiding the hair, gold, pearls, and expensive clothing, And then he goes on to say, nonetheless, we have an important clue to Paul's intention in the words expensive clothing. The proscription is not against all wearing of clothing, but luxurious adornment and excessive devotion to beauty and splendid attire. The words on clothing provide help in understanding the instruction on braids, golds, and pearls. Paul was, was not bent a particularly severe way and was saying, oh, well, if someone actually happens to braid their hair, uh, there's something horrendously sinful about that. that. That's not what he's driving at. The point is, is in that day, the harlots 
and the fabulously wealthy women would braid their hair with these fantastically piled up braided uh, hmm, uh, structures and they would put jewels in them and they would sprinkle them with gold dust. And, and so there would be pearls and, and uh, gold and all of this stuff in their hair. And so they would, they would come in to the assemblies of the Most High God and Paul is saying, no, this is out of line. Why? Because you're wearing what the harlots wear. Because you're wearing what the fabulously wealthy who are given to just the love of self come in to show off. That's utterly out of place in the worship of the Most High God. He goes on to say, Paul's purpose is probably not to ban these altogether, but to warn against expensive and extravagant preoccupation with one's appearance. James Hurley suggests that the command is directed against the elaborate hairstyles that were worn by fashionable women and wealthy courtesans. If you're not familiar with the word, courtesans means prostitutes. What's the point? When God's people come together, their clothing is to be a healthy modest, respectful covering that keeps them from being the primary center of attention when the purpose of their gathering is the worship of the Most High. And that can either be something that's sensual or it can be something that's lavish and luxurious. You can be perfectly immodest and be clothed from your eyeballs down to your ankles. If you're just coming in to show off, that's immodest. We're not here for you, and you're not here for me. We are here to worship Christ. And it should be a holy and a blessed, pure and good atmosphere. Let me press on. Knight also says about this word that uh, is... Translated apparel, it is used of deportment, both outward, expressed in clothing, and inward, and perhaps both together. So, that's, that's the very heart and soul of what we want to talk about. This word, apparel itself, can mean your attitude or what you're wearing. And the two go together. And if you are a Christian, your attitude should speak purity. Goodness. In other words, young ladies, when we come to the worship of the Most High, you're not here to be babes. And young men, you're not to come looking for babes. We're to come with a, with a spirit of reverence to worship and adore Him that loved us and gave Himself for us. Now, it says right here, in verse 9, you see next the word shamefacedness. And that is a, an old word. We don't use it anymore. But this is what the word means. It is a moral feeling, reverence, 
all. Respect for the feeling or opinion of others. Notice, respect for the opinions of others. Not attempting to get all the uh, attention to oneself, but an, a, a respect for the feeling or the opinions of others. You know, what's the standard thing today? I don't care what they think. I'm going to wear what I want to wear. I don't care what you do. I'm me. You're you? Fine. I'm okay. You're okay. You do your thing. Don't bother me. That is the doctrine of devils, not the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Amen. We do care what our brothers and sisters think because we love them and we want to encourage them, not cause them to stumble. Amen. <clears throat> it is a moral feeling reverence, awe, respect for the feeling and opinion of others or for one's own conscience. And so, shame. Self-respect. Sell a sense of honor. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.